When we communicate, we choose words carefully based on our understanding of their meaning. But biblical communicators faced a unique problem. Their words would be read by foreign cultures living thousands of years after their time. And biblical influence shaped those future cultures. So the understanding of biblical language has been shaped by the Bible itself, but also by cultural traditions. Take the word baptism, for example. The Greek New Testament authors use the word baptizo, a common Greek word meaning to wash or rinse, but the word baptizo was then codified and elevated into a religious ceremony. And now when we hear baptism, we only think about that ceremony. We entirely skip over the basic literary meaning of their word, to wash. We would do well to mentally substitute the word wash or washed every time we read baptism in the Bible, as this can sometimes recover fresh meaning that we might otherwise miss. Another good example of the same sort of anachronism comes from the word counselor. Isaiah described the Messiah as a wonderful counselor, and we might hear this as a great therapist. We think in terms of modern counselors, someone who listens well and helps us process through struggle, but mental health therapists did not exist in the 8th century BCE. The word counselor meant something different back then. The word translated counselor actually referred to a military strategist. The point was that the Messiah would win all his wars. He would overcome. We have to set aside our modern understanding in order to hear the word from the perspective of the speaker. Today, we're going to work to recover the original meaning of yet another term that has been reshaped by Western religious tradition and culture. That word is the word helper, or in Hebrew, ezer. Today we think of a helper as an assistant, a servant, or maybe even an apprentice. Thus, when we read Genesis 2, 18-22, and see God describe Eve as Adam's helper, it sounds like a menial role, like she's supposed to hold his shovel while he's transplanting a tree. But to the original audience, the word Ezer would have invoked an entirely different concept, because an Ezer was an ally in war. So for example, Ancient Israelites could describe America as an Ezer to Ukraine. Ezer did not suggest a servile status. The point was that an Ezer was an ally in the fight. An Ezer could be an ally, a co-combatant, a defender, or a protectorate. The word could even refer to a suzerain king, that is, a king who subjugated and then protected vassal kings. A suzerain king was the big dog, as far as kings go. Yet, he was an Ezer to the kings he protected. This understanding of the word Ezer dramatically reshapes the meaning of God's call upon Eve to be an Ezer to her husband Adam. Let's remember where we are in the biblical narrative. In Genesis 1, the Bible describes the creation of the heavens and earth and the establishing of humans as his priest kings, being given rule and stewardship over all God's creation. The second creation narrative in Genesis 2 zooms in on the human role. What does it actually look like for humans to be God's priest kings? The Lord, in an act of humility, chose dirt from the wilderness to form into his special image bearers. God did not fashion man from angelic light or from one of the chiefs among the animals or even from the nutrient-rich soil of Eden. 
God used wilderness dust, the most worthless part of the earth. Talk about humble origins. God took dust and made us, and then made us priceless and alive by breathing his own spirit life into us. And it was very good. But here we see that something was not good. It was not good for Adam to be alone. The Lord says in Genesis 2 verse 18 that he would make an ezer corresponding to the man. God called humanity to tame the wilderness and cultivate the whole earth into a garden temple. But this was too big a job for Adam to do alone. Adam would need an ezer in the fight against chaos and emptiness. Next in the story, we see a weird turn. Rather than immediately making that ezer, the Lord takes the man on a detour, telling him to name all the animals. What's he doing? With every animal Adam names, his sense of isolation grows. He sees that none of them are like him. He's the only creature made in God's image. He's the only creature in God's garden suited to the work of cultivating. He's got plenty of company, but no allies. And then finally, God creates Eve, the Ezer. Our translations say that the Lord God pulled the rib from the man, but that's not exactly a great rendering of the Hebrew word. The word translated rib is actually an architectural term referring to the side of a building. The idea is that God used the side of the man to make his ally, his Ezer woman. God did not take his head or foot, which might imply hierarchy. And it doesn't say God took a single rib, which might imply that Eve was made from a disposable component piece. God took the whole side of the man and formed his ally. That's why the man sees her and says, she's bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She's the rest of him. When God appoints an Ezer for the man, he doesn't give him a brother or a squad mate or a servant creates for him a woman. A woman who corresponds to him, which means she stands catty-corner to him. She is like him, but a mirror image. Her differences are key to her role as an ally. When man and woman work together, they can succeed in fulfilling the Lord's charge to them. Her differences in perspective, thought, and skill, that is her help to him. But then they rebel against the Lord. Rather than working together, they will try to rule each other. Rather than subduing the earth as allies, men and women will turn on each other and try to subdue one another. And as we read scripture, we see that happening again and again. Abraham assaulting Hagar, Potiphar's wife impugning Joseph. But we also see glimpses of men and women working together. Like Moses with Shifra and Pua, they were the two midwives who risked their lives to save the Hebrew babies from Pharaoh. Moses would be Israel's deliverer but he was first delivered by five women, Shifra and Pua, his mother, sister, and even Pharaoh's own daughter. God used men and women risking their lives for each other to rescue his people. Or consider Deborah and Barak. They were two true allies. Barak explicitly asked Deborah to lead him and his army into battle. He knew the Lord was with her, so he would go into battle only if she was with him as an ally. Later, we read of Abigail, who negotiated with David to avoid a deadly war. At the end of David's life, Nathan sought Bathsheba as an ally. There was a coup afoot, and Nathan needed Bathsheba's help to convince King David to intercede on Solomon's behalf. We later read of Jehoshaphat rescuing her nephew, stealing him away and hiding him in the temple. The heroicness of Jehoshaphat cannot be overstated. 
She risked her life hiding Joash, the last living descendant of the promised line of David. If Joash had been killed, God's promise to send an eternal king through David's line would have flickered out. Surely all the legions of hell were bent toward the toppling of God's promises, but they did not prevail. God raised up a brave ally in Jehoshaphat. Through her, God rescued the line of succession that would eventually lead all the way to Jesus. God used Esther to rescue the same line. She helped her husband, the king, see through the schemes of his devious advisor. Coming into the New Testament, we see women ministering to Jesus, something only women and angels are said to have done. Women financially supported Jesus' ministry, and in a culture where they did not allow women to testify in court, God chose a group of women to be the first witnesses of the resurrection. The Apostle Paul refers to a couple, Priscilla and Aquila, as his co-laborers in Christ, who risked their lives for him. Counter to cultural convention, Paul consistently lists Priscilla first. Listing her first suggests that, while both of them assisted Paul, Priscilla was the primary help to his ministry. In the kingdom Christ is building, we see numerous examples of men and women working as allies to fight against evil and further advance God's kingdom. While Ezra is used to describe the role of women, it most frequently referred to the Lord himself. Throughout the Psalms, God is described as our Ezer. Psalm 33 verse 20 says, Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our Ezer and shield. Psalm 70 verse 5 says, But I am poor and needy. Hasten to me, O God. You are my Ezer and my deliverer. In 1 Samuel chapter 7 verse 12, Samuel set up an Ebenezer, a stone monument to commemorate the Lord's help, saying, Thus far the Lord has helped us. The context is that the Lord had just delivered the Israelites from the Philistines. It says the Lord thundered with loud thunder against the Philistines and threw them into such a panic that they were routed before the Israelites. The Lord consistently helps his people, whether it's David fighting in war, the people of Jerusalem being in siege, or helping Christians fight sin and evil in the world and within ourselves. God is our Ezer and counselor, our ally and advisor in the fight. Obviously, God stands over us and is not subservient to us. An Ezer was not a servant. An Ezer was protective, loyal, and strong enough to turn a battle. This shapes how we view God's intentions when he formed the woman and called her Adam's Ezer. But it means more than this, because women are not the only ones who are called to be Ezers. If God is an Ezer, then men should be Ezers too. In Ephesians 5.1, Paul tells Christians, men and women, to be imitators of God as beloved children. As people made in God's image, we are called to become like the Lord. Later in the same chapter, he tells husbands to love their wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Husbands are called to imitate God, the Ezer. Paul says in the same place, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Jesus demonstrated a revolutionary new, or rather renewed, picture of humanity. Jesus' life and death flipped our categories of power, service, sacrifice, loyalty, and love. Jesus showed a picture of restored humanity, 
of what we should have been before the fracture of the rebellion in the garden. In Jesus, we see a glimpse of God's intention for men and women to work together as allies. As we all imitate Jesus, our categories of submission and power are subverted and restored. We are to love like He loved, and part of that love looks like helping, to come alongside one another and help push back the darkness of this age, both in ourselves and the world around us. While the woman was described as an Ezer, God Himself is the chief Ezer, and He calls all people to be like Him. And being an Ezer in any given situation doesn't mean someone is subordinate or a mere assistant. God, the Ezer King, has all authority in heaven and on earth. So then, what does it look like for us to imitate God? What does it look like for you, listener, to be an Ezer, an ally? Think about what's going on around you, your family, your city, your nation. There is such a big need for men and women to work together and help our neighbors, families, and enemies. Where do you need to step beside someone and help them? And where do you need to humble yourself and ask someone for help? We'll leave with a quote from Psalm 21, verses one and two. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth.